Charles here. Welcome to the 65th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Gareth Jones, the Assistant Director of Service Learning and Undergraduate Research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. When you are a podcaster or if you're on radio, we get a lot of guests as well as that the value of listening and thinking uh, about what that conversation is like and the value of that, you know, that's important. And uh, especially in today's world. You'll hear more from Gareth in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to a new CFP that caught my attention this week. From the CFP, quote, The Modern Language Association invites contributions to a collection tentatively titled Getting to the Finish Line, New Directions for the Dissertation Process. This collection will explore the practical and theoretical underpinnings of dissertations that look something other than a single-authored scholarly monograph, exploring both the process and product of the dissertation as it moves into new conceptualizations. We aim to outline non-traditional forms of dissertations, such as serialized podcasts, graphic narrative approaches, public writing, and others, that have been successfully completed or that are in the process. End quote. This collection seeks, quote, theoretical and practical essays by single or multiple authors that address issues such as the following. The history of the dissertation and how it evolved. How dissertations are evaluated and how they are valued. Students' agency in the dissertation process. What learning objectives and outcomes for writing a dissertation are. The role of collaboration in the dissertation process. How the form and context of the dissertation affect time to completion. What success looks like post-PhD. Theorization of the term Alt-Ac. The advantages and pressures of working full-time while dissertating. Using internships or community-based writing as part of the dissertation process. Developing teaching materials connected to the dissertation. Expressing arts-based or autoethnographic methods, creative writing, or translation works. Proposals for this project are due May 15, 2021 and should include a 300-word abstract, a current CV, and a 100-word bio. You can send your submissions to gradfinishline at gmail.com. And I say this class, but that's kind of how I approached it. I created a syllabus and uh, the first year we just each each show, we kind of focus on a different aspect of film. And I saw it as a way to expand what I do in the classroom, but take it onto the, the radio airwaves and do, you know, film 101. And so we'd focus on lighting or sound or editing all these different things. And we just got more and more comfortable with it and. I, I mentioned it before, but, you know, I feel they just feed off of each other. My classes, how I teach classes, how I do the show, uh, how I program the show, how I, you know, it's just giving me another way to learn to communicate. That was Gareth Jones, 
Gareth has taught film studies for 13 years in three states, including at Wesleyan College, Bruton Parker College, and currently the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. In addition, he has worked for over 20 years for the Sundance Film Festival as a consultant for festival logistics in parking and transportation. He also co-hosts a radio show about film called Sleep in Cinema on the internet radio station Substrate Radio. I caught up with Gareth recently to talk about the value of service learning in higher education, working at the Sundance Film Festival, and teaching film in the classroom, and how he would bring his radio show, Sleep in Cinema, into the classroom. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gareth Jones. Tell me, what's your name, your title, your institution, your role there? What do you do? So my name is Gareth Jones. Uh, I work at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which I believe you know fairly well. And uh, I have a couple of different roles here. Uh, one, I have a staff position. I'm the assistant director in the Office of Service Learning and Undergraduate Research. And then I also teach film studies courses through the Honors College. Uh, so I teach first year courses as well as uh, seminar courses for honors and uh, really, really enjoy that. Let's dive in and talk about your role as assistant director of service learning and undergraduate research. Sure thing. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your day to day activities. What do you do? What kind of students do you work with and what do you enjoy about your job? Well, I'm going to start with the last part of it first, and then I'll get to it. But, you know, the thing that I see my job, I promote, support, and facilitate opportunities for staff, faculty, and students. And the student interactions are probably my favorites because I am connecting them to an opportunity, an experience that will change their life. Because I firmly believe that service learning and undergraduate research are such uh interactive activities that you really get a hands-on experience to learn what you want to do. And I think that's such an important aspect of your college experience. And it's something I wish I had more as an undergrad. Um, I had the experience where I was, uh, I, I kind of saw myself out of the room where I thought I was going to be a zoologist and then had to take a couple of hard classes and that before I figured out that's not what I wanted to do. I enjoyed film studies courses. If I'd had, you know, earlier on, maybe one of these type of experiences and connected to the community uh, or learned more about a particular discipline, uh, I would have probably made that change much sooner. <laughs> and so I, that seeing students being able to experience that is huge. And so I incorporate those into my courses that I teach, actually. I, I integrate uh, research into those courses. Uh, but my normal day is just, yeah, talking to students, talking to faculty, building bridges. Uh, UAB is a big school uh, in that it has, uh, you know, the School of Medicine right next door. We get a lot of students here who come interested in medicine because of that and STEM fields. And so for, for them, they're coming in, a lot of them thinking, I'm going to do research. And so I talk to them about what that's like. 
and I tell them, yeah, here's how you could find a position or here's some workshops you can take to prepare yourself and to really figure out if this is what you want to do. Uh, and then with service learning, yeah, I mean, I just love, you know, telling, connecting students to the community, to nonprofits, and to see it beyond just volunteering. You know, service learning goes so much further than just volunteering. Volunteering is fantastic. It's important. But when you connect it to an academic course where you suddenly see how this connects you to the, the world and gives you the opportunity to reflect on that and connect in that way, that's a that's an incredible experience. So when I'm guiding students through these uh, these opportunities, that's that's very, very rewarding. And one of the biggest things that our office does is every semester we provide a symposium called the UAB Expo where students present their research. And uh, and. That is just the culmination of so much of what we try to do and to see students present their work and the lights which just go on where suddenly the passion is evident. But like, oh, my gosh, they've done all this work and then they can talk about it and suddenly realize how articulate that they are a specialist. They have done this research or they've done this service learning project and it's transformed who they are. That is just makes it all worthwhile. So, you know, so part of the minutia of the daily life of anyone on a staff position where you're putting, you know, budget items through and trying to schedule meetings and all the answer, all the endless email. It's all worth it when you get to that expo where you see those students present their work. So that's kind of a long answer to that question, but uh, it's also connected for me. My next question was actually going to be what drew you to service learning, but you really went into that and answer in that first question that nailed that. So I think what I actually want to ask you is what do you enjoy about service learning in Birmingham? So, you know, Birmingham and I, I'm from Utah, <laughs> so I am definitely a transplant. I've been here in Birmingham now for five years at UAB. And uh, I married a woman from Birmingham is <laughs> from here. So I had been traveling here for close to 20 years uh, and really got to know Birmingham and love Birmingham. And I think a lot of people have a perception of Birmingham, some of it absolutely right, some of it absolutely wrong. <laughs> and UAB being a an urban school, an urban university, and being a part of the Birmingham community is one of the big things that drew me here, to be honest. And again, that's so vital to what our office tries to do because of the, the incredible civil rights history uh, and obviously the medical side of, of things of how UAB and, the, and, and UAB mess. I mean, that's why UAB is here, you know, the, the medical school. And but, you know, both yeah. the positive and the negative way that UAB has been part of this community. And I think how it's striving to uh, counter some of those previous kind of poor connections or, you know, misconstrued or, you know, even misidentified opportunities and really finding, again, the thing we talk about with service learning is finding a win-win a situation, right? So going to the community and asking them, what do you need, rather than coming with a preconceived notion of what that community partner needs, but really having it be a collaboration. So whether it's a survey and saying, hey, you know, what what does your organization need? Do you need help with social media? Do you need help with some kind of on the ground organization? 
what exactly do you need? Do you just need physical supplies that we can help uh, raise funds for? What what do you need? And so to help that faculty member build that relationship with someone in Birmingham and finding those community partners who are doing so much to make Birmingham a better place, to build on the incredible things that have been here before, that is so exciting. And I think, you know, there have been classes and I think even UAB is looking to see the city as a classroom and embracing that relationship uh, and not being isolated, uh, you know, not being the tower on the hill. I think that's really important for research, for service learning, and just being better citizens in the world. You know, uh, yeah. that's vital. So when you come to UAB, you aren't, you are coming to Birmingham. You know, it's, it's much different than other schools that I've taught at. Uh, you know, I've taught at a couple of schools over in Georgia that were small liberal arts colleges, but a big public institution. We are public. We need to be upfront about that and, and interact with all the incredible things that are here. You mentioned the outsiders, transplants like yourself, um, get some things right and some things wrong about Birmingham. What's uh, what's something that uh, outsiders get wrong? Well, you know, I've had talks with multiple people about this recently about uh, accents and the inst- because of I'm a film instructor, right? We talk about how horrible Southern accents are in film or who gets it right, and who gets it wrong. But of course, the social kind of perspective or perceptions of Southerners, as soon as many people outside of the South hear that accent, the way it's represented is that people are not intelligent here, right? And of course, that couldn't be further from the truth um, that, you know, there is incredible wisdom and intelligence in the South and that it's not just the Northerners, you know, or the people up in the Ivy League. <laughs> but, you know, Birmingham and Alabama, it you know, has incredible history, incredible people here. And, you know, I think even people from Birmingham sometimes forget that. Right? <laughs> uh, they think, oh, I've got to I've got to go to a school outside of. Alabama, or I've got to leave Alabama. But um, even in my short time here, I've met enough people that have left and come back because they suddenly realize what's here um, and what's being built here. And so I think that surprises a lot of people. They don't see the entrepreneurship. They don't see the incredible, like even it's small, but it's active, the film community here. And I've really enjoyed getting to know that community here. The, the artists that are here are incredible. It's not just uh, out in California or New York or even, you know, Atlanta's done a ton for film in the South. But uh, when, and gosh, and we talked, we started about food, but my goodness, that's something, the food here in Birmingham is incredible. <laughs> I think, you know, even people who uh, think they know Southern food, when you come down here, it's just, the variety and the incredible just flavors. Oh my gosh. That's one of my favorite things is exploring the food of, of, of Alabama and Birmingham. You work with instructors, students, and community partners. Inevitably, there's a few folks out there listening to this podcast who've never taken on a service learning project in their classroom. What advice do you give to someone who's feeling a little trepidatious about taking that first step into finding a community partner and developing a service learning project? Well, it's, it's about building relationships and 
again, not thinking about what you as an instructor or you as a student are going to get out of this experience, but really putting yourself in the shoes of that community partner and having that discussion. So if you're a faculty member developing a course, you know, start early, you know, building those communication lines and really understanding what they need is so important because, you know, that has been an issue in the past. And this is, I think, across any academic uh, environment where there's a city where there is distrust in some levels where, you know, a faculty member has an idea of what they want or even a student, you know, they think, okay, I'm going to go do this. uh, I'm going to go help the poor, (laughs) you know, or the disadvantaged. And, you know, and this will make me look good or this will help build my tenure package or whatever. Um, but you really need to build that relationship first. And then the rewards on the back end are just, I mean, you're going to get incredible things out of the experiences, the reflection points, uh, even the failures that happen in it uh, are so rewarding in the long run. And, you know, I've been here long enough now that I see students that take these courses and go on. I mean, it really just can change their whole trajectory because uh, and they don't really think about this before going in. But, you know, if they really fully invest themselves in the experience, you know, it could suddenly change. And they suddenly like, I want to go start a nonprofit or I want to go change uh, this particular thing that I didn't really know about. But then I started to learn about it. You know, there was a student that I met with about three years ago who uh, did an incredible survey of uh, the number of trees on the UAB campus and was working with UAB sustainability. And this just recently, I know that that student is now working for a major environmental nonprofit here in, uh, in Birmingham. And when I met with that student initially, she was just like, oh, this is kind of an internship with sustainability. You know, had some interest in, in the environment, but now is like this major force here in Birmingham. And I've seen this over and over. And again, it's like if you go into these experiences and you have an open mind and you realize that, yes, you are you can help someone. But th- this is this mutual experience that by reflecting on it and seeing what your your part is in this, uh, it can be transformative. And that is, you know. Going into this experience, that but knowing that can help you kind of some, get over some of the hurdles of either creating an experience, making sure it's fully collaborative, um, and then when you're experiencing it, that you you realize there are going to be these, these reflection points where you can look back. And honestly, man, in life, I mean, you may feel this way. We don't have enough reflection points where we could just stop for a week and just really yeah. about what we're doing. And what this means to you personally, what it means to the community, what it means to the world. And then writing that out or creating a video or a blog, that's that's incredible. And to be able to have that as an undergrad, that's why it can transform you so that you can connect the dots of what you're doing to what you want to do and where, where your place is in the world. So very grandiose in my view, but, but at the same time, obviously... Um, I'm a I'm a disciple of this experience. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned you're a transplant. Um, where'd you grow up? So I grew up in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, I was a campus baby. Both of my parents were professors at the University of Utah. What did they and teach? Or my research? father. 
Yeah, my father taught uh, theater and English. He was uh, from he was from Wales, and uh, so very much uh, wonderful director of plays. So I grew up on many a stage, uh, and then my mother was an art uh, professor, and they met by she was de- helping design the scenery and. And then I, you know, when I grew up, I decided to kind of split the difference and go into film studies. You know, <laughs> well, I feel like, you know, it, it sounds uh, like the perfect meet cute for those two. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, it was a, a real great uh, synergy there. <laughs> so did you, did you grow up in Salt Lake City? So, yeah, growing up in Salt Lake. Um, and again, I think this has kind of helped me for moving to Alabama, too. I mean, people, when you say Utah, Salt Lake City, they have. Probably one instant thought goes in mind. Are you Mormon? What's that? Are you- <laughs> and I'm not, but I obviously I grew up in an area that was about 80% uh, Mormon, uh, and and so I, I I always you know connected to to people and gave you know tried to see things from different perspectives because of that, and uh, I'm a middle child as well, so. I think all those things has helped kind of prepare me for some of these things that I, I do now. But uh, yeah, uh, still. Growing up in Utah and then going to the University of Utah and then connecting with the Sundance Film Festival, that was a huge, uh, you know, changing point in my life where, uh, you know, initially I was just attending. And then uh, when, uh, you know, to get through school, I, I took on a job as a parking attendant, which is when like, was that? So that was when I was 16. Okay. And uh, it was and then I went through my whole undergraduate career with that. And it helped pay the bills beautifully. And it was a great place to study. I tell you, you know, if you're in a parking booth all on your own, it's you're on a, a midnight shift. You can do a lot of reading. Um, and so, so how I long have that. you worked with? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. no, no. I was going to say that led to um, then being I took on a managerial position of Park City, Utah. And in 1998, uh, Sundance approached my company. And said, hey, you know, we've been using volunteers to help with our parking for a long time, and it's just not working. Uh, we can't get them to stay out in the cold, freezing weather for eight hours. <laughs> so they said, let's hire a professional company. So they came to my company, and uh, we signed a contract, and I've been working for them ever since as a consultant and trainer and, uh, you know, helping put on the – helping control the – lack of parking that exists during the Sundance Film Festival. So, but along so the way, I was going to say along the way I've been attending, of course. And so it's <laughs> given me this incredible front, you know, front, uh, front view of the entire transition of what independent film has been, what the festival has changed uh, and how it has transformed over the years and how it stayed the same. It's been a, an incredible experience. So let's, let's nail down some dates. What year did you start working with Sundance? 1999. Okay, so over 20 years then. Yeah. It's been a it's been a while. How has I mean this is a loaded question. Take it however you want, but you mentioned the landscape of the independent film industry. So how has it changed since you've associated with Sundance in 1999? Well, it, tremendously. And really I I'd, I'd go tremendously, back even right? Yeah, yeah, to 92 which was kind of the, the big, you know, the, the mid nineties. That? Yeah. That's when you had the studios really start to come and you had the independent film become much more successful with people like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. 
and that you know a, a giant spotlight suddenly you know was th- thrown onto Sundance, much bigger than it had been before. And you started, I mean, from my job perspective, you know, when I first started, we'd we'd have a few entourages, we'd have to make sure Robert Redford had his parking space, but um, you know, bigger and bigger entourages, bigger and bigger movie stars kept coming. You know, like one of my favorite anecdotes was, you know, Britney Spears showed up and, and suddenly the, a whole different type of press was there. There was, uh, you know, suddenly we had Paris Hilton and Ashton Kutcher there, you know, it just totally changed a lot of the premieres <laughs> that were there. So how it was perceived and, and, it, and the parties that went on, uh, you know, and those were all important for raising money <laughs> and to put a spotlight on Sundance. And along the way, you still had every year incredible filmmakers and artists that were discovered. And so Sundance has never lost that. Yeah, you can be critical of some of the money aspects of it. Um, you know, and even now with streaming services, you know, that started about five years ago where, you know, Netflix and Amazon Studios started showing up and, you know, films would already have distribution or, you know, they premiere the night after they premiered at Sundance and people, you know, that was a much different than back in the day where it was like, oh, let's discover Reservoir Dogs and then it gets picked up by Miramax and or what have you. And then, you know, it takes a lot, six to nine months to have a release. You know, now we get a film that premieres at Sundance and the next day it's on Netflix. Um, so that whole thing has changed. But regardless of that, every time, every year I get my battery charged, my film loving battery charged because I see these new films by new filmmakers who are pushing the medium are challenging perspectives, uh, great representation you know i i absolutely love that and discovering those things and then just seeing those films then get embraced so like minari is a great example of a film from last year that uh you know really came and surprised a lot of people there got best uh best jury prize best audience award and now it's going to be up for a bunch of oscars and you know that was fantastic. And that was the same year that Taylor Swift premiered her documentary. So, you know, Sundance has this incredible kind of balance of those two things, uh, you know, and I love that. You mentioned that your dad and your mom were both educators in the arts, uh, fine arts. Um, when did you, Gareth, really decide that film studies was not just a passion, but something that you wanted to integrate into your career? Well, graduate school definitely uh, planted that seed. Uh, I went to Hollins University in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and uh, it's a a women's college uh, during the year, but their graduate programs in the summer are uh, for everyone. And, uh, you know, I tell students today that, you know, your, your undergraduate people that you befriend are people that, you know, are friends for life. And uh, but your graduate school people are people you're going to work with for life. <laughs> you know, these are your colleagues, your future peers. And so I made a lot of really good friends there. You know, and I had a gap between my undergrad and my graduate school that gave me some life experiences, such as working for Sundance, so that when I went back to it, I embraced everything. I went to every event. I went to every 
Q&A session. I interacted with faculty in the lounge. Uh, it was a wonderful program from that perspective. And I'm glad that I had that time in between because then I fully embraced it and I, and I was given opportunities to present things and I really developed a taste for it. And it was funny, uh, uh, one of the friends that I befriended uh, at, in grad school, a future colleague, he had been teaching at a small school in, in Georgia. And uh, as I was wrapping up my, my degree, he contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to take a year off to write a screenplay. Do you want to come down and teach a few courses for a year? And uh, I said, well, yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> you know, so I went down and he, uh, he had started this program. Uh, it had only been around for about a year, year and a half. And it was a small, like I said, a small liberal arts college. Uh, so I was the only film professor there. So I had to teach pretty much everything, which was wonderful and scary at the same time. But right. uh, yeah, he decided after writing that screenplay, he didn't want to come back and teach. And so I was offered a full position and uh, absolutely just full, you know, fully invested at that point i absolutely discovered that i loved teaching and again i think just the way i was talking about the way i love to connect to students through my staff position you know when the light goes off i mean i just i i tell people like it's very it's reductive but at the same time i think it's valuable that all of my film classes were i'm just teaching you how to critically think right you're just you can take my intro to film class and you are getting the skills that will help you break down and analyze so many other types of situations. And I'm exposing you to things that will change your perspective. You're going to put you in the shoes of another culture, another country and look at things from a different perspective. And so with those two things, you know, I can, if I meet, if I can do that in any film class I teach, even, you know, production, screenwriting, you know, my my special I'm a generalist, you know, I just I love teaching history of film, film analysis, film theory. Uh, and but all of those, again, I'm just helping you be a better, more rounded individual that you can look at the news and not fall for the fake news. Right. Uh, and gosh, you know, be open to new experiences to say, oh, yeah, that film from Korea sounds really interesting. I'm going to go watch it. You know, uh, and I'm going to see a new culture, a new perspective. And then that, I think, makes you a better human being, you know. So. Uh, so, yeah, that I just discovered that love. And that's obviously my pedagogy just is always connected to that. Um, whatever experience I, I, I give the students in the class or outside of the classroom is always built around that. Tell us about one assignment or an, even an assignment sequence that you like teaching in one of these classes. Well, let me talk about my Film Fest 101 class. So with all this film festival experience, four years ago, I developed a, uh, as I call it, Film Fest 101. And so this is an honors college course. It's a FYE first year experience course. UAB, as you may know, it has a, a great uh, media studies minor, but right now it doesn't have a major. So the majority, I mean, I might have one or two, but the majority of my students are not that interested in film. They usually just sign up for it because they're like, I like movies. We're probably going to watch movies. I'm going to take this class. And even with the, the description of like, this is a film festival class, they still, none, most of them have never been to a film festival. 
they really don't understand what that means. And they aren't even, they aren't film majors. As I said, you know, I've, I've got tons of STEM majors in there. I've got social sciences. I've got business, education, nursing. But I challenged them in that class to create a film festival. So the first thing they have to do is program that film festival. And so every student is responsible for proposing two short films. Uh, and they have to present this to the whole class. And uh, so that's one of the first assignments is go out there to, to YouTube. And we always use public domain stuff on YouTube. I say find two films that you can be passionate about and convince us that the those should be included in this film festival. So that's the first assignment. And they're all uh, uh, put on different teams, different groups. Uh, you know, someone, one will be marketing, one will be logistics, one will be uh, technology. And again, going uh, programming, uh, they have to come up with the final program, all those things. So they all propose these films and they vote on them and they, they write on them and they analyze them. And then the programming team has to then propose the final cut you know what this thing is going to be like and this last year again we we went online and that was an additional challenge you know if it's in person they have to book the venue they have to advertise they have to put the film reel together all these things and of course you know these students they've never done anything like this before so but by the end of it they have a film festival. It's it's always amazing to me, although at the same time, I've done it enough now that I, I feel confident. The first time I did it, I was nervous as can be. I'm like, oh, my gosh. But even then, I was like, you know, if we fail, we fail. We learn from it. Right. But every year at every at the end of the semester, a full film festival is put in play. We get tons of students that come to it. This last year, since it was online, we had people from France and New York. It opened it up in a whole new way with new challenges. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 awesome to see, again, the series of assignments of how, like, first, let's think about why you should be passionate about film, why you should be passionate about these short films, why they should be part of this film festival. And then they've got to share it with the community. And that's huge. And so, you know, suddenly people discover their voice and they want to present these films and they want to interview filmmakers and or they find their technology and they're like, oh, okay, I know we did Discord last semester and you know, we had a couple of people like, oh, I use Discord for video games. Let's transition some of those skills and let's apply it to a film festival on Discord. And so, uh, yeah, it, I just love that series of kind of uh, experiences that they have that builds to this tangible experience of a festival. And it's celebratory. That's the other thing. I mean, it is a celebration at the end and they feel that. Like I see that like physically in their their whole demeanor with the students that they're just yeah. so excited to share that. So so that's one example. That sounds like an awesome collaborative experience for the students and, and for you. I can hear the passion in your voice. you like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric writing studies and technical communication as well as adjacent fields do you have a new book coming out are you hitting the job market this cycle the Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Uh, so the film scene here in, in Birmingham, it's small, but it's tight. It's very connected. It's growing. Uh, the hub for it is the Sidewalk Film Festival. Uh, I volunteered one year, the first year that I came here, and then a couple of years later I did uh, a theater managing for them. Then I got a little burnt out, so I stepped back this last couple of years. But uh, but I, I connected with a lot of the people who work with, with Sidewalk, uh, and they do an incredible job. I just have to say, you know, coming from Sundance, they do an amazing job putting on this cool, just interactive. They have so many awesome things that they do with the Sidewalk Film Festival. And then, of course, now they have their cinema that they have opened. So that nice. is it's not only, you know, the, during August that it's the center for film experience. It's all year. And so obviously the pandemic has put a huge dent in some of that, but they still do so many incredible things. Like I'm part of the sidewalk book and film club. So once a month we read a book and we get on zoom and talk about the book and the film. They, I was part of the 24 hour, although actually it was longer than 24 hours for most of bad movie marathons. So they raised money by showing bad Christmas movies so they come up with these incredibly creative and last uh, last August they did drive in, you know, instead of, you know, the, they, that was their pivot with the uh, pandemic. They did an incredible job. They, they did a full drive in festival. Um, but, yeah, they're super creative with connecting to the community. So that I see that as the hub but outside of that. You know, I've also connected with the academic groups that are here on in the in the Birmingham community, as well as. The, you know, the filmmakers themselves. And I think that the support system here is so strong. There's a great Facebook group, Alabama filmmakers, uh, that do uh, tons of advertising for opportunities uh, and are very supportive of each other. You know, I've connected with filmmakers up in Huntsville, down in Mobile. Uh, I've had them talk to my class. I've had them come on to my radio show. Uh, so, you know, it's, we have Atlanta next door and there is definitely spillover from that. I mean, Atlanta, they did an amazing job. I mean, they just hit, hit, <laughs> hit it out of the park with developing a film community. I think Birmingham can keep growing. It can be part of an alliance here in the South. I think that Nashville, Memphis, they have a great film community at North Carolina has a great film community, you know, and I see these connections that people have, but uh, again, you know, I can't, enough about what sidewalk does to really support 
they don't just show movies. You know, they do so many other really cool things that help support this community to keep the dialogue moving and connect people that otherwise wouldn't be connected. Even during these pandemic times, they do a fantastic job connecting people. So I, I'm so glad they're here. <laughs> it sounds like they're doing it sounds like they're developing a culture of creativity and artistry in Birmingham. Absolutely. Um, and that's exciting for sure. So let's talk a little bit about your radio show. Uh, All right. Sleep, sleep in cinema. Yes. Uh, I know you're excited to talk about that. <laughs> and that is on substrate radio. Let's start first. What is substrate radio and where can folks find your radio show sleep in cinema? Yeah, well, and you just talked about the arts community. That's another thing I love about Birmingham is that it's so interactive between music, film, visual art. You know, it's all we all work together. Right. And so Substrate yeah. is a great example that they're a hub for so many different things, not just music, but they were Jason Hamrick is the owner uh, of it. And uh, he is a musician. Uh but a few years ago, I, my, uh, my daughters were going to the Alabama Waldorf School, and uh, I got to know Craig Saravolo there. And Craig is a great musician here. And, uh, you know, I started to listen. To, so Substrate Radio, it's Internet uh, radio, but you can also tell your smart speaker to play Substrate Radio. You can use the TuneIn app on your phone. There's lots of ways. And then we always upload our, our shows to the Mixcloud so, which has been kind of funny, you know, we are getting more it, people's kind of a, it's more like a podcast in that way, but we always have it live. But anyway, I met Craig. Uh, we just started like, you know, we drop off our, our daughters there and we just had to talk about movies. And, uh, you know, then he started having me on the show as a guest. And out of those conversations, we just felt like, man, we've got kind of this nice connection. We have a dynamic that uh that works we think and so we proposed to jason this class or the and i say this class but that's kind of how i approached it i created a syllabus and uh the first year we just each each show we kind of focus on a different aspect of film and i saw it as a way to kind of expand what i do in the classroom but take it onto the the radio airwaves uh and do you know film 101 and so we'd focus on lighting or sound or editing, all these different things. And uh, we just got more and more comfortable with it. And I, I mentioned it before, but, you know, I feel they just feed off of each other. My classes, how I teach classes, how I do the show, uh, how I program the show, how I, you know, it's just giving me another way to learn to communicate. And I've, uh, I've gained a lot of confidence even from that. I mean, I'm sure you as a, a podcaster and anyone else who does that, you got to learn to love your voice pretty quick. Right. You know, or you, you got to get over it. You know, everyone always yeah, says, get over it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I hate how I sound. Right. And you know what? It's OK. Everyone has their own voice and that's fine. Embrace it. Work with it and get over it. And suddenly you find that your passion shows through you sound more confident. And uh, so it's helped me from that perspective. So what are some of the things you like to talk about on Sleep in Cinema? So once we got kind of through my syllabus, <laughs> it became a little less academic. And, you know, we choose, uh, I, I kind of program it. Again, it's still uh, academic in some ways, like I'll choose for the month to focus on films from Africa 
or we'll do, you know, Black History Month and we'll do or we'll focus on female filmmakers. Uh, sometimes it's by what the award season is. So uh, we actually did a whole month recently on the show Small Axe by uh, Steve McQueen, an Amazon film series. And really, it, that was a phenomenal conversation uh, for a full month talking about that show, that series of films. Uh, but yeah, I still, I always have that education aspect when I program it. Now, Craig does a great job of balancing me on that on the show. Uh, he keeps me from being as pretentious as I sometimes get to, to be sometimes when I get really nerdy. Uh, but, uh, that's the balance that I love on the show. And so I, and when he programs stuff, we also balance it out. We always have a mystery song of a song that's in a film and so we use our social media as a way to promote that and give some balance to the the show so it's not just us talking for an hour straight <laughs> we you have commercials which is great um and i'm sure you program lots of other wonderful things in there um and so but we still love that live aspect of it too uh that we can make mistakes uh we often joke that it's two old guys trying to remember the names of actors that's part of the show <laughs> It's just us struggling and we try not to use Google. We try to just because that's human and we love that live kind of interaction where we're it's OK. You know, that's we're all in that right now. We've all mm. forgotten the name of something here and there. Even me. I used to remember things so quick, but now that's OK. I embrace that and I enjoy that. And uh, so it, it's really again, it's helped me become I think a better instructor from that perspective that I can, I can listen better as well. I think you, you, maybe you could speak to this too, is that when you are a podcaster or if you're on radio, we get a lot of guests as well. Is that the value of listening and uh, thinking uh, about what that conversation is like and the value of that, you know, that's important. And uh, especially in today's world where, you know, especially, I mean, it's true of any pop culture, but with film, I mean, everyone is shouting their opinions online and for good or ill. And it's nice to kind of sit back and just have a nice conversation. It really is. I like to think about it like it's unfolding in my head, like as, a, as the conversation goes. So I don't have time to talk. I need to listen and think about what's going on. Let's talk about sleep and cinema in the classroom. How might you envision instructors who find or listen to sleep in cinema and want to implement it in the classroom. How, what do you think about that? How would you suggest going about it? Well, and I've, t I've talked to a couple of professors who actually have podcasting classes. And I think some of the things I've always referenced of embracing your voice, getting comfortable with another mode of communication, interviewing skills, I think I have definitely improved immensely as we've had more and more guests of learning to listen, learning how, but also guide a conversation. I think that that, to see that in a different way outside of the classroom is really valuable. Uh, you know, I've also embraced, you know, video essays and all these sorts of things as in an academic setting. And I think being open-minded as a, an instructor is, is so valuable that you can embrace these different types of media and meet students in different ways. And so I, I you know, for example, I offer students extra credit if they listen, you know, and do a report on it because that gives me feedback on how they feel I'm presenting film. Uh, 
and I and it gives me also opportunity to just practice talking about film in a different way to a different audience. I think very often we get caught up sometimes in all of the the academic minutia when we're teaching. Yeah, we have our objectives, we have our outcomes, and those are very important. Uh, and how we communicate those is really important. And again, I don't think it's reductive. I think it's really important sometimes to just be more plain spoken <laughs> to students. And I think, again, talking on radio to who knows who's listening, but try to always think about that this person may have no experience with that film. And if I make a reference to something, you know, it shouldn't just be insider knowledge. It should be something that I'm enjoying sharing with them. And so explaining what that reference is and so that it's not just like this inside joke between film fanatics, that it really is for everyone to listen to. And so and that's having diverse guests on is really important from that. And thinking about diversity, uh, that's huge. Uh, it, you know, changing the canon in film in any all of the arts uh, and the sciences. I mean, it's so important to change the canon and whose voice and who's talking. And that's another thing. It gives me a platform to give to other people, uh, to former students, to people that I work with peers, to people who may not have access to a radio station, you know, and, and give them an opportunity to talk and talk about Again, it's their favorite movie or what have you, but then that's a new voice that's out there as well. So there's, I think taking that philosophy and putting it in your classroom is huge as well. That, you know, not being the, the sage on the stage that you need to give your time. And that's, I hope I exhibit that with the courses that I, that the students have a lot of power. They have a lot of opportunity to lead the conversation. Yeah. And that, that empowerment then just obviously connects them to it in such at such a higher level. What are some of the films and filmmakers that you like sharing with your students in your film classes? Well, I don't want to jump the gun on what my favorite film is, <laughs> but I get asked that question. And may, do you mind if we jump to that just real quick? Just go I, for it. I was okay. That, just for the audience. That my last question was an attempt to not ask you what your favorite movie was. Well, so here's <laughs> but the let's thing. Let's hear it. Let's hear yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I embrace that because obviously it's an impossible question for any, you know. Right. Even, you know, people who don't consider themselves film fans, it's a really tough question. And uh, but so I get asked. And so I use it, you know, I, I guide them. I say, OK, well, my favorite film of all time. Uh, is the one that transformed how I see film. And so I talk about Brazil by Terry Gilliam. And so I saw that in 1985 when it came out, and I was 14. Okay. And it hit me at the perfect time, where I suddenly, you know, before that, it was movies. It was entertainment. That's why I went to the, the movie theater. But suddenly I saw, wow, this is an incredible art form. That, yeah, I had enjoyed Monty Python and the Holy Grail and all that before. But now someone who is from that has made this incredibly challenging, confrontational, uh, political film. Still funny, but, you know, very challenging as well, especially for someone who's just their brain is still forming. Right. And so I saw it a bunch of times in the theater and it just changed. I saw film as an art form. 
And so I talk about that transformative experience. And then I, it's always my icebreaker. I just say, hey, well, now tell me what your favorite film is and why. And they suddenly start to think about it. And instantly the change has started, right? They don't think of it as just pure entertainment. It may have started that way. And so they can talk about any film. And I love that. You know, they can talk about an Avengers movie. And a lot of them do. Or, you know, whatever film they experienced with maybe a family member. Um, so I love sharing about Brazil. But again, I challenging the canon. Um, in my intro to film course, I always uh, have Body and Soul by the incredible black filmmaker Oscar Michu from the silent era. And I do also... I do torture students a little bit in that I, for almost the first half of the class, we just do silent films Wow. Uh, in that class. and But I show them that body and soul. And of course, we talk about the context of the time in the 1920s and what was happening and compared to other filmmakers and trends that we talked about. And then I end the class with Selma. And, you know, and we talk about what, what has changed and what hasn't changed. And that's the last question I always ask on to my students is how do you think things have changed from where we started back in the silent era to today? And, you know, I'm going to keep that as long as I can. <laughs> um, although maybe I'll ch change to Judas and the black Messiah here soon. Uh, but Selma, you know, being, you know, being here in Alabama, you need to know that story. And so I'm always, you know, I am amazed that it's not more uh, that it hasn't been seen more by <laughs> Uh, by students. And so I, I'm glad that I can share that one uh, as well as, you know, again, country, you know, films from all over the world. I mean, I did a class this last semester for the first time film in the world and uh, to save money, I had them use movie. Uh, you could get a free account with the, the streaming service movie and movie has this interesting approach where they curate about 30 films each month and then they disappear. And so I had the, we, we scheduled the whole class based around that. And it was very interesting and challenging to find those films. And I was even exposed to a lot of films I hadn't thought of before. And suddenly, okay, I'm putting them on this, the syllabus. So um, yeah, that's, I, I take that kind of approach of this, like sharing so many different new things. You mentioned Minori and Judas and the Black Messiah. What else have you seen recently that might find its way on the syllabus and why'd you enjoy it? Oh my goodness. Uh, so many amazing films. Uh, this year, uh, I saw and Sundance was virtual as well as in person. And uh, I saw some incredible films this year. Uh, a couple that stood out to me. One was called Hive, uh, which is from uh, Serbia and uh, was really is based on a true story about a woman who takes on a beehive uh, and the empowerment that comes from that and, and countering the misogyny and all of that, that exists in that country and still does. Uh, I thought that was an absolutely brilliant film. Uh, and I think that will get incorporated at some point. You know, I just mentioned, yeah, Judas and the black Messiah, um, a night of Kings is another one that will definitely at some point, I teach a prison in film class. I'm teaching it this semester where we talk about, oh, that's really films. cool. Yeah, about how Hollywood and media shapes our perceptions of prisons and prisoners. So what do you watch in that class? Well, we start uh, from the, the early 1930s with some of the big house. And uh, we just this 
week we actually uh, are in the 70s now. So we're doing Escape from Alcatraz. We just did the Longest Yard. We will do Shawshank Redemption and Dead Man Walking. Uh, a, an incredible documentary from Sundance is up for an Oscar called Time. Uh, is one again. I always take films I see at Sundance and I, I incorporate them into my films. But uh, Time is an amazing documentary, uh, and uh, and and it also connects to service learning or with the community where uh, UAB has this great Donaldson lecture series at the Donaldson Prison, where faculty from UAB go and present lectures to prisoners at Donaldson. And uh, that that was a transformative experience for me uh, when I started doing that and helped really shape this course that I'm offering. Uh, and just yeah, an amazing experience. But uh, I even brought in a, a, a prisoner who's now out of Donaldson and came and lectured to this current course uh, to talk about how he perceived prison representation in film and, and the accuracy or lack thereof, uh, what that's like. But yeah, it's it, again, they just inform each other, you know, the, the festivals that I go to and I get exposed to new and exciting voices. Yeah, that Night of Kings is an incredible story about this prison uh, at the Ivory Coast. And it's run by the prisoners. It's the only prison in the world that is run by the prisoners. So the actual warden of the prison is a prisoner as well. And uh, this is based on also the value of storytelling in it. It's, it's one night where someone, a prisoner is nominated to be the storyteller and has to tell a story through the whole night. And it's kind of got this magic realism to it. It's an absolutely incredible film uh, that, yeah, I'm hoping to incorporate here soon. I'm going to have to put that on my list, as well as that film Hive. Those sound awesome. Um, I've seen Judas and the Black Messiah, and it is an exceptional film. Um I recently saw Sound of Metal. Have you seen Sound of Metal yet? It's on my list. I've got to get it. Okay. Well, I got to watch it so that first for I also teach a disabilities in film course. I saw I that like, on your syllabus. Yeah, and I've I've been meaning to watch it. I just haven't got to it yet, but I've heard incredible things about it. You know, I went in and I knew it was going to be good. I I don't think I knew it was going to be a masterpiece. We'll have to see how how things pan out though. Yeah. Anything. Anything else you want to mention before you, uh, before I let you go, get off here, enjoy the rest of your day? Well, thank you for this opportunity. As you can see, I love talking about movies. I love talking about teaching. I love talking about service learning and undergraduate research. And again, uh, I think, you know, having this, this is a really cool podcast that really gives people like me a, a, a platform to kind of talk about how we approach teaching, right? And yeah. uh, and how we can incorporate things that we're passionate about and challenge students in a new way or give them an opportunity that they can't get in any other way. And, uh, you know, again, the importance of the undergraduate experience, that this is a time in your life where you can take a film class. You know, it's so funny when I go out into the world and people like a doctor's office, they'll ask me, Oh, well, what do you do, Gareth? And I'll say, Oh, I teach some film classes. And immediately they're like, man, when I was an undergrad, my favorite class was a film class that I took. And then they want to talk about movies. I mean, it's like the instant mm -hmm. breaker. Um, and, and obviously I love talking, but that's what I hope my students get to that, you know, in, in 20 years or so when they're out there, if they're a doctor or if they're a lawyer or, politician or working as head of a nonprofit that they could still think back and like, Oh, wow. I still 
fondly remember that film class that I took where I saw that film from Korea that changed how I perceived, you know, life in Korea. And uh, now I, I absolutely love kimchi or something, you know, just that sort of exposure. I really hope that the type of experience does, or if they go on to be a filmmaker, great. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And I do get a few of those. I do get every, every semester will be one or two students who will change their major or add a minor uh, because they found this new passion for film. So uh, I'm very grateful to have those opportunities. One story from your time at Sundance, one great story before you go. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there's so many great. I mean, again, since I'm on the parking side with 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 entourages and making sure entourages can get in, uh, I interact with a lot of celebrities and movie stars and uh, with the red carpet <laughs> and that sort of thing. Uh, and I really do get to see how people treat the little people because I'm one of those little people. <laughs> And so yeah, I learned yeah. I learned very quickly, you know, who how people treat me if they're driving themselves, how much baggage do they bring to the situation? And and one of my favorite stories was uh, Danny DeVito <laughs> with Rhea Perlman uh, <laughs> okay. were just driving themselves. They came to their own film and uh, he just rolled up. And uh, while I was talking to him, unfortunately, we had a, a fire truck that needed to get in which again is one of the main jobs we have is to keep people out of the fire lane. We have this whole thing. And, you know, I've had experiences before where suddenly I have to change the tenor of my voice from being extremely, you know, Oh yeah, let's take care of it. I had to say, Mr. DeVito, you got to move right now. We got to get this in because we have an emergency situation. And he was the nicest guy. I mean, he moved immediately asked how he could help, you know, wanted to be, you know, just didn't want to get in the way at all waited patiently because sometimes those things take a while and you know he was coming to the premiere of his film but he was just really cool about it and that always is a nice experience so uh, i have a lot of those i have some on the other side i won't share those as well. <laughs> um but uh yeah that was one of my favorite memories was working with mr devito awesome thanks so much gareth thank you charles my conversation with Gareth Jones. It was a pleasure to catch up with him and learn about the innovative things he's doing at UAB and around the city of Birmingham. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the big rhetorical podcast Emerging Scholar Award. Our nomination pool is growing rapidly, actually, so make sure to get your nominations in by May 15th. And donate to the cause if you can. You can find our GoFundMe pinned to our Twitter page, at the Big Rep. Don't forget about the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming in August. Our theme is Contending with Misinformation in the Classroom and the Community. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Beluga, Spinning Merkaba, Hodge, 
in springtime. <laughs>